Good judgment comes from experience. And experience, well, that comes from bad judgment. Hi, guys, and welcome back to Wellness Fucking Wednesday with Nix. Today's podcast, I'll be sharing my experience at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Maximum Security Women's Prison in Melbourne. Before we dive into our podcast today, guys, I do want to throw out a little disclaimer. In no way, shape or form am I glorifying my experience in prison, but I just thought it was crucial that I share with you this experience because this is what shaped me to become the person that I am today. In fact... It's actually what fucking saved my life. It saved me from the lifestyle I had been living for five years. And to be honest, it was a very humbling time in my life. I feel as though before we get deep into it, I think it's important to create a little bit of context around what was my crime and what actually sent me packing to DPFC, which is Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. So in around November, early November of 2018, by now I'm a raging drug addict that is coming to the end of my tether. (laughs) I was tired internally. I was fucking tired externally and you could see this a mile away. I just look like a piece of fucking walking shit. <laughs> I can laugh about it now, but I, when I really reflect, I think, fucking hell, Nicola, God. So anyways, we're in the beginning of November. I'm currently living with a partner who I thought was just, oh my God, my absolute soulmate. Uh, And yet we had never spent a day sober together. So this entire relationship was totally drug-fueled. We've run out of drugs. We've got two stolen motorbikes. And I say to my partner that morning, hey, can you ring, you know, we'll just call our dealer, Timmy Bob. Can you call Timmy Bob and organise for us to go over there and pick up some drugs? My partner says to me, yep, I'll call Timmy Bob now. Cool, lads. Okay, great. Because I've got drugs seeping out of my fucking system and I need a top-up because when the drugs seep out of my system, trauma starts creeping in and I'm just not fucking ready to deal with the trauma. So we get on these stolen motorbikes. Again, I say to my partner, did you call Timmy Bob to organise it? Yes, I did. So when we get there, Timmy Bob's going to be there. Yes, he is. Okay, let's fucking go. These motorbikes that we're both riding are totally stolen. We've taken it, we've repainted them. (laughs) We've taken off the number plates. We've stolen fresh number plates and put them on the back of these motorbikes. He gets on one. I get on one. We start speeding over to this fucking house, which was on the other side of Melbourne. We get there, pull up outside. I look down the driveway. Timmy Bob's car's not there. I take my helmet off, I turn around, I look at my partner and I said, where the fuck is Timmy Bob? (laughs) And by now, I'm full of rage because I'm that desperate for a hit, you know, I'm ready to do anything. So I'm angry, I'm shaking, I turn around, I said, did you call Timmy Bob? And he's like, well, nah, I didn't. I'm like, oh my God. He says, well, I just thought that he would be here. I didn't need to waste credit calling him. 
Anyway, Timmy Bob wasn't there, long story short. I get back on my motorbike and I'm like, I cannot believe this. I'm so fucking filled with anger. And it's not at the fact that, you know, my partner lied at me. It's not at the fact that Timmy Bob wasn't there. It's at the fact that I don't have any drugs in my system. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, that is some far out shit. Well, I agree. (laughs) It is some fucking far out shit. And this was my life once upon a time. This is how desperate my life had become revolved around drugs. So I look at my partner and I look at him in disgust and I'm just so angry. I get on the motorbike. I say, fuck you. I fucking start flooring it down the road on this bloody stolen motorbike. He comes flying after me, chasing me. We go through these roundabouts and then I go through this one roundabout and I clip the fucking curb. I go up on this roundabout, I come down, I go roly-poly over the road and onto a curb. And now I'm lying, staring at the blue sky in Melbourne, on my back. My partner jumps off his motorbike and he runs over and he's like, babe, are you okay? Are you okay? By now I couldn't breathe because I was totally winded. And I swear it was in two minutes. There were police on either side of us. There were unmarked cars even across the road. I, To be honest, I feel like it was a setup because I just feel like we were swarmed with police way too fast. But hey, whatever, I'm not going to hold on to that. So anyways, all in the commotion, they go up to my partner and they say to him, you know, what's your name? And he gives them his real name, not thinking about anything. He just did it. Now, what had happened two months prior is he and a friend actually did a armed robbery at a, at a shop. The friend sat outside on a stolen motorbike and the partner I was seeing at the time went into the shop with a shotgun and held them up for cigarettes and money. So when my partner was hovering over me and I'm lying on my back and he's given his name to the police, they run a check on his name and they realise, holy fuck, this is the, the guy that we've been trying to get for the last two months for that armed robbery. So they immediately put cuffs on him, they take him away and then they have a look at the file they think, well, we're actually looking for a lookout as well. There was somebody that was sitting on a stolen motorbike out the front of that shop while he was inside doing the armed robbery. And they come over to me and I'm finally caught my breath and they say, how do you know that man over there? And I'm like, that's my partner. You know, I'm not even thinking. And they just put two and two together and they're like, okay, so here's his partner. She obviously rides motorbikes. Obviously not that great because she's lying on the ground. (laughs) We think that she was the one that was sitting out the front of the shop while he went inside and did this armed robbery. So boom, next minute I was in cuffs. I was taken to a hospital. They did a quick check over. I had scrapes, I had bruises, but nothing major, nothing broken or anything like that. And so from the hospital, I was put into the back of a car and taken straight to lockup. From there... I remember standing in front of the judge the next morning and he just, yeah, he said, I have no choice. I'm going to be sending you to Dame Phyllis Frost Centre until your trial. 
And at the time I was standing there, I had this fucking, my t-shirt was completely ripped. I looked like absolute shit. I had now had no drugs in my system for coming up to 24 hours. I was looking like a zombie. And when I heard the mention of Dame Phyllis Frost Center, in no way, shape or form did I have any fucking idea that he was referring to a woman's prison. But that's exactly what he was referring to. Next minute, I'm on this, like a paddy wagon kind of bus where it's just a little kind of square contained space and there's just enough chair for your ass. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, there's a little tiny window and I remember just staring out that window as we were driving, we would be stuck in traffic. I didn't know where we were. Um, we'd be sitting in traffic. I'd be looking out the little window down at the car next to us and seeing the people and thinking, oh my God, they're free. And here I am stuck in this little fucking box. And next minute, I remember coming into the prison and I was fucking shitting my pants. So we pull into this prison and I was greeted. Well, I had to get out. You know, they check the bottom of your feet and stuff like that. You have to spread your arms and legs and stuff just to make sure that so they can patch you down. Even that in itself is kind of like, oh my God, I'm in a whole new fucking place right now. And this isn't in particular order. It's been a little while. It's been, well, that was 2018. It's been four years now. So you go in, you do a little bit of paperwork, you're just pretty much sitting there. And I was really lucky because the first lady to approach me was Māori. You know, when you're far away from your homeland uh, and you're in another place, and I mean, I've been doing dealings in the drug world with Vietnamese and Turkish and all these different ethnicities, and in my time that I was absolutely fucking scared and I didn't know what to expect and everything was just so uncertain, I'm presented with a Māori woman. And there was just an immediate sense of calm for me. And she was absolutely fucking awesome. And I'll be honest, she does message me from time to time. She does message me to check in to see how I'm going. She watches my stuff on Facebook and stuff like that. And she's really proud of me. And she remembers me from that first time when I when I got to prison. So that's like, oh, I'll hold that forever. Yeah, so she did all my paperwork and stuff like that. Then I had to go for a shower. These showers are just pretty much off the office area. So I go for my shower and that's when you've got to squat and you've got to cough and make sure you are not got anything inside you and stuff like that. And it was actually that Māori lady that kind of shared with me some rules. I remember walking out of the shower and I've been given a track pants and a juicy and I remember rolling one of the legs of my track pants up. I don't know why. Anyway, I walk out and she goes, roll that down. And I said, oh, how come? And she said, because in prison, that means you're looking for a girlfriend. And I'm like, oh, my fucking God, where am I? Maybe I am. No. <laughs> um, but that was the first kind of thing of I'm in a place where there are unwritten rules. Yeah, that was my first little taste was her actually telling me that. Another 
thing that she told me was that actually there's no smoking cigarettes in this jail and that was a big thing because I've been a smoker since I was 11 years old. So now I'm faced with not only the fact that I have to give up drugs but I also have to give up cigarettes. So this was a double whammy for me. But yeah, the, the last thing that she shared with me, and I'm very, very grateful that she did share this with me because it's actually stuck with me to this day, is don't get caught up in the politics. And I remember saying to her, what does that even mean? When someone says the politics, immediately my brain is thinking politicians and government and all of that. And she said, no, no, if there's a little discrepancy between inmates, don't get yourself caught up in it. You just carry on, fuck off over here and do your own shit. And I was just like, oh my God, yes, I needed to hear that. So I'm the same to this day. I don't get get myself caught up in politics. Your shit is your fucking shit. And I've got my own shit going on over here. So you get put, as a new inmate, you get put into a housing unit. And I can't remember the the exact name of it but it was pretty much a housing unit for newbies and you had to stay in here for two weeks and in that two weeks you had to kind of prove yourself in terms of your behavior um, just so they could get a sense of what kind of person you were if you were a troublemaker or if you were good and obedient then after your two weeks in the newbie housing unit you could then progress to another housing unit uh, where you might have a little bit more freedom and things like that. So I get put into this housing unit and my cell consists of my bed, I had a desk, I had a my own shower and toilet, I had my own hand basin, um, I had a kettle, I'd been given my my pack which included a plate, a saucer, a bowl, a knife, a fork, a spoon. And my toiletries were a toothbrush, a toothpaste and a bar of soap. And that was it. That was all of my stuff that I had in my cell. But immediately, you know, I would say the first week I slept because I was coming down off a four and a half year binge of drugs and I needed to catch up on my sleep. So for that first week, I'd say that just every day I would sleep. I'd wake up, go for a piss, go for a shit, um, fucking go out and, you know, get my food and then bring it back into my cell. I wouldn't really eat, so I started stockpiling food and stuff. I think we had a little fridge in our, in our cell as well. So I'd start stockpiling stuff in there. In no way... Am I standing here before you today and I'm going to say that it was easy as fuck? Hell no! I'm quite certain a couple of those times I cried myself to sleep because I needed these drugs. But I think it was that first week I thought to myself, it might sound a bit odd, but there was a feeling of calmness that I hadn't felt for four and a half years because... If you've ever been on drugs or been in the drug world, you would understand that it's such a fast-paced world and every day is something fucking different. And your shit, your possessions are never safe when you're hustling and you're bustling. What is yours is never truly yours. There is a high potential that the people that you're surrounding yourself with can fuck you over at any minute. 
And so for that first week in jail, I remember feeling like, holy hell, this room is my room. And no one is allowed to come in my room. Everything in here, although it was fuck all, it was my uniform, it was my plate, it was my cup, that was my uniform. That was my plate and my cup. And it was 100% safe. So in a fucked up sense, it was the first time in four and a half years I actually felt like shit was actually mine. And it was a good feeling. So it didn't take long after the first week I started, you know, getting up and going out and trying to mingle and stuff like that. And it didn't take long before the nickname Kiwi caught on. (laughs) So that was my nickname in jail, Kiwi. The second week, uh, I think it was about the second week, I had decided that I need to start doing shit because sitting around in my cell was starting to get fucking boring as hell. And the time was creeping. And so I thought, I need to start getting myself busy. Because if I'm busy, the time's going to fly by. At this stage, I hadn't heard anything from a lawyer or anything. I didn't know what my fate was. I didn't have any idea when I was going to be let out or if I was going to be let out. What I did know is that I didn't do the armed robbery. And so I just had to sit and wait until somebody could prove that I didn't do the arms robbery. In the meantime, I knew I had to fucking stay busy. So I applied for a job while I was in there. So the job is working for, it's obviously working for the prison, but the business that we're working for is Qantas. And what it was doing was cleaning headsets for flights. You would walk into a big room and there would be little tables situated everywhere with women sitting around all these tables. And depending on, you know, if you were a newbie like me, you got put on this particular table. And on this table, oh my God, I would never want to fucking do this job ever again. But on this table, there was, in the middle of the table, there was a mountain of fucking cords, headphones, all twisted and fucking tangled, and all just sitting there, and it was our job for one dollar an hour (laughs) to sit there and untangle these bastards, and if you can imagine, you've got a paper towels in the kitchen, and it normally sits on a, well, the one in our kitchen, it's a, a wooden circle, and then right up through the middle, you've got that fucking pole, And then you put your paper towels on. Well, we got one of those at our table, just the circle with the pole, and we would have to sort through and untangle this big fucking bird's nest full of headphones. And then once it's full, the headphones is untangled, we would then put it on that paper towel holder type thing. And we would have to do that until the whole paper towel folder was completely filled with headphones that were untangled. From there, we would take that over to the table that was next to us, and their job was to then, one by one, take those headphones, grab a wipe, and clean those headphones. Once they've done that, they would then take them to another table, and this is how it works in there. Each table, you're going up in your pay bracket. 
So starting with my table, which was the shittest of the shittest <laughs> jobs, there was a dollar an hour, and then moving over to this one, it might be a dollar twenty an hour, and then moving and so forth. By the time it got to the last table, their job was then to put the brand new Qantas wrapper around this headphones and then package them into boxes to send them back out to Qantas. So if you're ever on a fucking Qantas flight <laughs> and you put your headphones on, you know how they're getting cleaned. <laughs> but anyway, that was my job. And I started that job, I'm going to say at about eight o'clock. We would work up until say, oh, I can't even remember. I'm just guessing now. Until about 11.30. And then we'd have an hour lunch. And normally lunch was, was sent to your housing unit. So you'd have to leave work, run back to your housing unit, get your lunch, have your lunch, and then get back to work by one o'clock. And then we would work until about maybe three or four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to explain to you now what a full day for me looked like when I was in jail. And I purposely set my day up like this to try to make my fucking time go faster and to keep me occupied. I would wake up at about six o'clock in the morning and I had a TV in my cell, but I never watched TV because I tried one time while I was in there and it was a show, it was a New Zealand cooking show. And this man was fucking traveling around New Zealand cooking up seafood and I just it, it just made me feel sick <laughs> because the true term is jealous as fuck and I just thought oh god the state of this man I'm not fucking doing this to myself so I turned it off so my tv religiously the whole time I was in jail stayed on the jazz channel I remember hearing girls next door and their tv was up loud and they were listening to Rolling down the street, smoking in dough. And I remember thinking, how can you do that? Because the minute I heard that, it was, you know, songs are associated with memories. And immediately it took me back to raging with my cousins in Odahu, you know, in Auckland. And I thought, how can you do that? So torturous. And so I would have my TV on jazz because my whole life I'd never listened to jazz. And so I had absolutely no memories attached to the sounds of jazz. And that's exactly how I wanted it. So I could create new memories and I, I wouldn't be sitting there feeling, you know, like shit and dwelling on the freedom that I no longer had. I'd wake up at six o'clock, I'd have the jazz channel playing. I'd get up, I'd put the jug on, I'd have a shower while the jug was boiling and jump out, get changed, sit down, have my cup of tea. Seven o'clock every morning, they open up your cell door. And so I'd, I'd walk out, I'd grab me an apple out of the, they have a big communal area where they have, you know, a big bowl of fruit and shit. You can just grab it as you go. So I'd grab me an apple in that and I'd go for a walk and I'd walk up to the mailbox. Now, inter-jail mail was free. If you wanted to send mail, obviously, to your family and all of this, you had to have money because you had to buy the stickers. At that time, you know, I wasn't too close with my parents and that. And so I had no one outside 
to send mail to. But my partner was at another prison. And so at nights I'd uh, write letters to him and in the morning I'd walk up, grab that apple, walk out, go up to the letterbox, post the letters, come back, have some breakfast, and then I would go to my job. When I would finish at lunchtime, I'd go to the gym. I wouldn't even have lunch. A big thing for me as well was I was scared because I know that if you're going to give up an addiction, it's most likely that you're going to take up a new addiction, which could be eating. And I didn't want to fucking substitute drugs for food. And next minute, I'm fucking big as a house. So at lunchtime, I wouldn't eat my lunch. I would go straight to the gym, jump on the cross trainer, do a bit of a workout, and then I'd go back to work. At four o'clock, I would go to the gym and I would play badminton. I was, badminton has always been my number one favorite fucking sport in my whole life. And I could not believe that they had badminton in this fucking jail. Oh my God. And it was the prime sport in jail. Everyone was playing it. I couldn't believe it. Fuck, I thought I hit the jackpot, guys. Anyways, I would always try to squeal my way in or worm my way in. As you can imagine, in jail, there were so many cliques, so many groups of women that were pretty tight. And it was pretty hard to try to penetrate those cliques and try to fucking squeeze yourself in there. And, you know, in my mind, I was like, don't worry. Shit, I don't want to be your mate. I just want to fucking play badminton. So anyway, I ended up finding the perfect badminton partner. was this old lady, and I remember what I used to do when no one would play with me. I felt like that fucking kid whanau. I felt like that child that no one wanted to play with in the fucking playground. And I would just walk around with my badminton racket, and I would just whack the shuttlecock, you know, and just play by myself. I'd whack it against the wall and just keep whacking it against the wall. Anyways, one day I'm doing that and I hear this lady and it's this old Vietnamese lady points to me and she goes, me you, me you. And I'm like, yeah, fuck yes, hell yes, shit, I was happy. (laughs) Shit, I was sick of fucking playing with the wall. So anyways, we jump on and I'm just over the moon because I'm like, you know, this is their sport pretty much. So she's going to give me a good run for my money. So her and I start playing and, you know, her English wasn't on, to be honest. Anyway, I'd say to her, you ready? And she'd nod. So I'd whack the shuttlecock over the net to her. And then every time she fucking whacked it, she was like, you ready? And then I was like, oh, what the fuck? And I'd whack it back and she'd go and whack it. You ready? And I'm like, oh, my God. And it was, you know, it was literally how a child picks up on English. So for me, I'm a pretty bad sport fan. I'll just throw it out there. If I miss it, I'll fucking swear my head off. So she would hit it over to me and I'd miss it and I'd be like, fuck. Next minute, this old lady's fucking saying, fuck, fuck. And I'm like, no, 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 don't say that. Are you ready? And then she'd start saying, are you ready? Oh my God. Every day... I would, I just started calling this lady, are you ready? I would just start playing with, are you ready? I'll go and play badminton with her. She was fucking cool. She didn't want to talk about nothing because she couldn't talk. And that just suited me just dandy. 
So anyway, I go to my job one day and I'm sitting there unfolding this fucking bird's nest full of these headphones and Are You Ready walks into the building because she works there too. And I look over at her and I wave to her, hey, are you ready? And she waves to me. One of the girls that was sitting next to me, she goes, do you know that lady? And I said, oh, no, that's just, I just fucking play badminton with her. And she goes, do you know why she's in jail? And I says, no, I've never asked her. And she goes, fuck, I'll tell you why she's in jail. One day she went over to her son's house to visit, you know, her son, his wife and her grandchild. And the wife, the son wasn't home, but the wife was giving the grandchild a bath and the water was too hot and the grandson was fucking crying. And so that old lady fucking killed that wife and then cut her up and put her in a fucking suitcase and threw her in the river in Melbourne. And I'm like sitting there and I'm like, what the fuck? And they were like, did you know that? And she was all over the news, all over fucking everywhere. And I'm like, oh, no. And they said, oh, well, I hope you're letting her win badminton. And I'm like, fuck off. I don't give a fuck who she fucking knocked off. She ain't winning against me, chief. Oh, my God. So that was kind of the first time that I was like, shit, I am surrounded with crazy ass bitches. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty freaky, but still, you know, like, I was a little bit hesitant after that fun. I was caught in a predicament. Do I let this, are you ready, win? Or do I say, fuck you? You ain't winning badminton against me, chief. So anyway, I I took that route. I didn't let her win, whanau, fuck her. But yeah, that was the first time that I had heard some of the crimes that, you know, people had done in jail. And I was like, shit, this, this is outrageous. That's the end of part one. But tune in next time to hear part two for Wellness Fucking Wednesday with Nick.